This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. This is uh, Paul Verschur with our summer school uh, again, together with uh, Tony Prescott, um, co-chair of summer school, and John Kaas, one of our speakers. Um, and John, John gave a talk... Uh, um, about evolution of the brain, and you show this this incredible overview and insight in in how brains have have evolved. So so um, why is evolution the, the sort of this evolutionary perspective on, on the brain so so essential to you? Well, uh, part of it I went in my talk, and and that is is that we have a curiosity of how we got here, what we are, who we are, and. Uh, you can think of it in development or you can think of uh, in religious terms, but you can also think about it in evolutionary past of, of where we started and how we got here. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a neuroscientist, I think the perspective of how our brains got to be the way they are is uh, the most informative and interesting uh, uh, given that what we are is so much different than what other species are in terms of abilities, in terms of what they do, and so on. And, and uh, one of the statements I re- remember is, if you're criticizing someone, are you a man or a mouse? The real difference, uh, the main important difference between a man and a mouse is the brain, I think, uh, the things that the brain can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, There are some slight good, morphological it's, it's differences. They have a body that's appropriate for the brain as well. <laughs> right. Okay, but so then, then you, you define, let's say, you, you identify evolution and, and let's say the phylogeny of brains as a phenomena, phenomenon in and of itself. Right? So this is one perspective. But do you see it also contribute uh, to, let's say, extracting these fundamental principles along which any brain is organized? Yeah, so the same sort of thing. I, I, I picked the evolution of the human brain because it would be the most interesting for the most number of people, but you could uh, pick anything. How, how would you get to an unusual brain such as in a duckbill platypus? How would you ever get a brain like that? Why is it organized the way it is? Uh, and uh, it applies, if you're talking about rats, why do they have such a wonderful vibrissy system and so on? You can start asking questions of how any mammal's brain got the way it is from the early right. beginning. But then if you, if you, let's take the platypus, which is sort of very close to the common ancestor also of our brain. Um, why is my brain not exactly like the brain of a platypus? What are the differences and why are these differences there? Well, first, uh, th- there are some amazing similarities. And so all mammals will have this layered cortex, which is quite different from any non-mammal, and that's something we share in common. So one of the points I tried to make is is that given the six-layered cortex, it can be uh, changed and modified in a number of ways to fulfill the needs of all kinds of different species, and depending on on, uh, what they need to do. A lot of species... uh, have a high reproductive rate and a short life. And if you're going to have a short life, you need a high reproductive rate, you need to reproduce early and so on. So you you can't really invest under those circumstances in a complex brain. It takes too long to build, too much energy. Uh, so we happen to be one of those uh, lucky species that has uh, figured out how to live a long time. And so we can have a brain that takes 20 years to really fully develop, and and uh, that, that that's almost unique, that luxury. Uh, but it leads to a very complicated brain that whole range of other species never invest in. They just want to get reproducing within a few months, and they don't ex- they are unlikely to live more than a year or two. Uh, so you have those kind of brains. But a duckbill platypus. Uh, has taken uh, a very unusual tact, and that is, is that it, it uh, lives in water and feeds in water, uh, 
other, some other animals have done that, mammals have done that, but in this case, uh, they were able to develop from mucus glands uh, uh, electroreception. And at high levels of current, I guess we could all, we all have electroreception, but to get the low level, of, uh, high level of sensitivity, uh, it's not clear exactly how that's come about, but it's happened independently in, in, in several fish and so on. Uh, and once you have that, you can exploit this environment of turbid, muddy water that you can't see in, you can't really hear when you're adapted as a mammal to be above on land part of the time. So you can touch things, but then you're already up there. Uh, so electroreception is what makes them unique and makes them different as getting electroreception. They've refined that to a tremendous degree and become their most important sense. So the duckbill platypus is interesting because it split from the main line of mammalian evolution a very long time ago and followed a very distinctive path Yes. So, so it's almost now a unique creature. Now, the common ancestor that the duckbill platypus has with other mammals lived, what, around 250 million years ago? Yeah, yeah. And what is your view of what that animal was like, um, why it evolved to be different from a reptile, and how the evolution of that first animal uh, changed the brain in, in such a dramatic way? Well, you're asking a tough question because of the lack of... Uh, of uh, intermediates, uh, but uh, when it was proper to talk about the ancestors of non-mammalian ancestors of mammals, they talked about them being uh, uh, mammal-like reptiles, uh, and uh, their brains were bigger, uh, but it wasn't clear whether they had a neocortex or just a dorsal cortex, and it's not clear how dorsal cortex of a single layer of pyramidal cells uh, with a different kind of uh, wiring diagram and processing of, of information and sending information back out, how that kind of cortex changed to the neocortex. And in my talk, I emphasize neocortex because this structure is not new. A lot of people complain it shouldn't be called neocortex, and some people have called it isocortex, but it's new in the sense that it's a six-layered structure that evolved from something that was a one-layered structure with fiber layers on each side, so you could really call it three if you wanted to. But it's uh, one layer of cells that get the input, and one and the same cells provide the output. So it's it's very simple and and in kind of the wiring diagram it has. How, changing from that into six layers gave the great flexibility and possibilities to early mammals to diverge and develop in so many different ways. A lot of the ways were just simply modifying the way sensory inputs were represented, enlarging what was important, uh, putting more neurons into what seemed to be behaviorally important, uh, so you get uh, large vibrissae representations, for example, or large nose representations, or large mouth representations. All these are common variations in the somatosensory system. A lot devoted to vision, little devoted to vision, these kind of things. I'd say these are what we'd say is rather modest modifications. Echolocating bats devoting a tremendous amount of uh, space and cortex to the echo frequency. Uh, another example. So would it be true to say that the dorsal cortex of uh, the stem reptiles from which these first mammals evolved um, was a, a relatively simple layered structure, just three layers, and, but was it also doing uh, sensory processing? I would say it had more to do with something like uh, memory or something uh, like... There's evidence that it had to do with habituation, which would be a kind of learning, short-term learning. Uh, and this would be very valuable, but it wouldn't be very useful in detecting uh, a bug from a ball or, or making discriminations of what kind of sensory information this was. That, that information would be done subcortically. So the auditory and the, the tactile 
and the visual brain of the stem reptile would be a midbrain. And then in the first mammals, this dorsal cortex yeah. would suddenly start to take over or, or be involved in the representation of these modalities. Yeah. Midbrain and parts of the forebrain that would be now considered basal ganglia in the ma mammal. And certainly the amygdala was a large part of this subcortical uh, processing and still is for a lot of kind of behaviors. And the pressure to develop that new uh, function for dorsal mm. cortex, mm. is would that be to do with the lifestyle of those first mammals and how that had shifted? Well, it's presumed that the lifestyle would have been a little precarious for them because you had all these uh, very fast uh, reptiles, dinosaurs all around, many of them predators. And so it was assumed that they would be nocturnal, their skeletal fissure, uh features suggest that they were nocturnal, they were small, they were living on insects or maybe uh, some of them eating some of the infants of smaller uh, reptiles and things like that, eggs perhaps, but mainly on insects and scurrying around and hiding at night. And a c couple things uh, became important. One was the change in the auditory system in which the bones of the jaw the, became dissociated from the jaw. So you have the three uh, bones of the inner ear, which really defines mammals as, as something unique, and that allowed a transduction into a high frequency transduction, transduction of sounds for the first time. So early mammals had a nice advantage over reptiles in that they could communicate mother to offspring, or mother offspring could make a separation call or something at a high enough frequency that a predator couldn't find them. And they started to exploit this kind of, uh, of life. And now we presume that auditory inputs to dorsal cortex, which would be now neocortex at some stage, would, would have emerged for the first time. And that kind of auditory processing at a higher level would emerge uh, with the ancestors or with the first mammals. Uh, Do you see then also a link of olfaction here because of, about nocturnal animals? So you want to sort of rely on sensor modalities that yeah, don't so. require light. But now you emphasize audition. Recently there was a paper out on where people looked at fossil, the fossil record, making the argument that actually this whole drive towards the cortex was very much grounded in olfaction. Do you, do you support that? Well, I, clearly the first mammals emphasized olfaction a lot. And this is a really old idea going back to Herrick. A uh, hundred years ago there were the evidence from looking at at mammals and in a comparative way, but also some of the fossil evidence uh, suggested that olfaction was very important. They used mainly comparison of living mammals, uh, but it's been substantiated by everything that's been learned since then. And so that if you had to look at the forebrain, it was dominated by olfactory processing. And this would be very handy for a nocturnal animal to find their food, find their mates, not use vision, not really use uh, sound so much because that would lead predators to find you. So the uh, olfaction is, is, is obviously crucial, but another interesting thing with the first mammals is uh, the emergence of, of hair. And I think it's presumed that before hair could have a thermoregulation function, it would probably have had a function as a touch sensor. And of course, that, that, that was probably in the form of the whiskers, the vibrissae of the first mammals. And so then you also have somatosensory cortex. So, so Yeah, it becomes, uh, it's very important. The, the sensory hairs probably were the most important feature of early hairs as, as, as uh, somewhat distant or, or you know, they can touch something before they quite touch it longer the hair the better uh, and this would be especially a, a great advantage in in poor light or bad light where vision wouldn't be so useful as you'd touch something and and you could back away before it was too late or, or decide what kind of behavior you might initiate and and a good example of that would be in in uh, naked mole rats which have been studied at Vanderbilt and other places and and they're not naked. They have these sensory hairs, but the other ones are gone because they don't need them for thermoregulation. 
and they're very driven by where what hairs you touch. So they don't see you, you touch with a little stick or something, uh, one part of their body they go forward, another part of the body they go backwards you know, because the, where they're touched determines what direction they're going to move in. So, so now we, we have sort of a sketch of this, this early mammal, mm -hmm. and, and, um, but it also then had to develop a brain that, that would match these capabilities, mm -hmm. and then and the idea would be this would, it would contribute from this step towards a sixth layer cortex, right? if we just sort of highlight the, the, mm -hmm. the isocortex in this case. Um, but still, then within that, um, so so now, now there would be two questions at least. Well, one of this, okay, how do I get from a one-layer sheet of cells performing some very simple, possibly memory function uh, or learning function, to a six-layer structure, and also so fairly rapidly? But then, how do I make that match? All these variations on morphology, on on mixing of different sensor model modalities. Efficiently and rapidly, because you know we're talking came an explosion roughly. So we have all these these different types of, of animals emerging. So so how how do you see the six layer cortical sheet being rapidly adjusted in its details to then the specific requirements? Mm -hmm. So how do we get from one layer to six, and then once we have six, how do we tune it actually to the specifics of the, the specific organism in which you want to have that cortex working? Well, the speculation of how you get to more layers uh, would be that uh, the original uh, organization really corresponded to layer five uh, pyramidal cells. Uh, they get inputs on their apical dendrites and they send outputs subcortically, and this is what dorsal cortex does with a few interneurons. Uh, how those other layers came about and evolved is really rather uncertain. Uh, people working on development probably will come up with and are coming up with some good suggestions about cell migration, cell division, uh, changing the cell uh, replication cycle and so on. But it's really uncertain because we don't have examples of intermediate forms. Uh, once you get to the six layers, you can uh, modify the sensory representations that are there, as I already mentioned, in all kinds of ways. But the real powerful advantage of cortex is, is that you can start to replicate cortical areas and increase the numbers. Uh, one idea that we talked about a long time ago is just you, you duplicate uh, areas that are already there and then modify them differently for different functions. I don't know if this is the way new areas emerge or where they emerge gradually by internal differentiation. But the idea of duplicating is something that's an old uh, advantage in evolution, where you duplicate body parts. And as you can see in segmented creatures that have more segments and more body parts that were originally all alike, and then you start specializing them as, as in a lobster with different of the appendages modified for different functions. And you can think of cortex with more areas doing something similar, is that you're now modifying different parts that might have been quite similar in anatomy and connections and, and, and making them more and more specialized for different kinds of functions. If you don't have a number of areas, you can't specialize for different functions with one area very easily. You can subdivide an area into more layers and get some of that in a, a single structure by, by having layer differences, but really the best way to add is to get more areas and then specialize them. And you specialize them in terms of what their inputs and outputs are, but you specialize them also in adjusting them to what they're best at doing or what you want them to do. So you can have uh, dendritic arbors that are large or small and they collect information from a few neurons or a lot of different other neurons. Uh, you can use different neurotransmitters. You can have different neuromodulators that will affect them in a different way. You can, uh, and you can end up, as we hear in all these talks, with neurons that are sensitive to very uh, particular kinds of combinations of sensory information. Yeah, but there's, in my mind, there's sort of a gap still in in, in that answer because 
if while I'm changing my morphology, yeah. it's not that I can just change my morphology and I flop around for a few generations and then at some point in time I have a brain that matches my morphology. These changes have to happen yeah. in a very coordinated fashion, right? So, uh, so that means I, I would hope that that you have an answer, just for my own to, to satisfy my own ignorance. That would mean something like, well, there there is a very specific genetic control that allows you to change body parts and in some sense change also matching neural structures in some coordinated fashion. Yes, absolutely. So, one thing that you can imagine is is that you change brain parts without changing peripheral morphology at all and get more out of the kind of information that's coming in. But there is a cascading uh, sort of mod uh, modification that occurs in any system. So if you change one part, the whole system is changed by that, it's, at least in development, but also in mature animals. And that's due to the plasticity or the flexibility of the system to always adjust the change. And so one of the major mechanisms of, of, of evolution is, is that you change the sensory inputs. Say uh, you change the cochlea so that, it, that you can now send signals at higher frequencies. The whole system, if you did that in any animal that didn't hear high frequencies, if you gave them the possibility of high frequencies, the whole system in development would adjust to that and, and have neural space devoted to this. Uh, if you double the number of receptors that come from the face, the whole system would adjust to that and you would have more processing throughout. And okay. So that, your answer is essentially to say, look, the first trick was maybe to develop a brain or a cortex if you yeah. want, that is, let's say, hyperplastic or hyperadaptive. And then after yeah. that, you can start to play with your morphology to, to sort of see how you can optimize yourself to a specific niche. Yeah, you, ha you have things that will happen automatically. And, and uh, one of the th papers that, uh, from Vanderloos was is how the periphery instructs the brain how to build itself. And I think that paper was not as influential as it could have been in part because he was looking for genetic reasons as well at the same time, and he deleted his own message that way. The powerful thing was working with mice. If they're born with an extra whisker or a whisker short or a couple whiskers extra or a couple short, you still have a whole vibrissae system that incorporates those new, new uh, that new information or that lack of information into the number of barrels or barrelettes or whatever in different parts of the somatosensory system. So uh, the system developed to accommodate the change in the periphery. So and even that change in the periphery is somewhat in indirect because it depends a bit on how folds in the face occur in development and that determines how many whiskers there's going to be. So. so we have this early mammal brain uh, which mm -hmm. is, is plastic and allows quite a lot of diversity mm -hmm. to happen but it's still really quite a small brain and then you mentioned in your talk something that was very interesting that around uh, 60 million years ago the reptiles disappeared and that this was an opportunity for a new radiation of mammals to diversify into a whole new uh, set of, of, of niches in which they could mm. live and that there were then some really quite dramatic changes in the brain as a result of that for some groups of mammals and one of those obviously is the group of mammals that led towards primates and eventually to ourselves. So, so what do you see as the most important changes from those earlier mammals to, say, the the early primates? Well, it did give an opportunity for animals to become diurnal. It became a, a lot of opportunities for different kinds of environments that they could occupy and so on. Uh, their risk of being preyed upon changed from this uh, very efficient reptilian predators to uh, the mammals that had to evolve into becoming efficient predators and opening up that predator uh, uh, environment for them. Uh, but early primates developed apparently from animals that were emphasizing vision more and living in bushes or trees and trying to go into the pine branch environment and live on insects and find food there. And it gave them an advantage of escaping some predators by being away from them. Uh, 
but it put demands on visual processing and dim light that that were uh, very powerful, and so it, so they had to devote more to vision. So eyes were big, a lot of receptors, but the whole visual system started to expand and devote more neurons and more cortical areas for sequential processing. And already in the ancestors of present-day primates, the temporal lobe would have been expansive. Uh, the fossil record shows the temporal lobe and occipital region are both expansive. Both of them are thought to be completely devoted to vision. And so the cortex now is going over and covering the whole midbrain and much of the cerebellum. Uh, you can get that from the fossil record. And of course, if you're going around and catching things rapidly in fine branches, insects that could hide or escape or, or defend themselves in some sense, but uh, you have to uh, be agile. You have to be able to uh, hold on to a branch that may be moving up and down and reach and get something that may be on another branch that isn't moving or is moving in a different way. And you have to use visual guidance for these kind of movements. And uh, grasping things with a forepaw would be something to be important uh, and new, sort of, instead of grabbing things with your mouth, grabbing them with a forepaw. So eye-hand coordination would start to become important. And so all primates then, uh, all living primates, uh, have a huge investment in, at the cortical level in processing visual information, but also in processing sensory information re relative to uh, simple motor skills. So, I, 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 yeah, and I think that's quite important, the idea of, of the hand, and also the hand being being away from the mouth, so mm. you can look where you want to, to eat something or pursue something and go with your hand for it. Mm. And in a way, also, that frees you from having the need for the whiskers quite so much because you now use your hand as this organ for, for touching uh, further away in the world. But one of the things about uh, primates, I think, that that people notice is is that they that they live in large social groups, and that the, the development of these mm -hmm. societies of primates was possibly one of the important factors in in their success. And is that reflected in the changes in the primate brain? Not all primates live in social groups, and a number of the prosimians don't. So it's uncertain, I think, if the first primates were social or not. There'd have to be some kind of evidence one way or the other, and I'm not aware of any. Uh, they might have been solitary and nocturnal. Uh, the suggestion would be that they're nocturnal. But if you're going to go to the ground, or you're going to be out in the daylight but and the ground, uh, it's a tremendous advantage to be in a social group because then you can be detected visually by a lot of different predators. You need a lot of sentinels. You have to have somebody warning you that, that there's danger and you're not too distracted by trying to find food or other things. So a social group then becomes very important. And a side benefit of a social group is you can defend a territory against other social groups or non-social animals and drive them out. And that would then impact on the sort of uh, non-motor or, or less motor and less sensory areas of the brain and this the would, way that they would change. This would impact on, I think, especially frontal cortex and enlarging frontal cortex. And you see in, in the monkeys and, and all the anthropoid primates that the frontal lobe is really well developed. But it's not very well developed in, in the prosimian primates by comparison to monkeys. Uh, by comparison to most other animals, the frontal lobes are quite well developed in even prosimian primates. So, so now we went with our cortex from from the first mammals, or no, the first vertebrates, um, um, up now to the to primates. But in some sense, that's not that's not the only part of the brain that evolved or that, that changed, right? There, there's let's say also an underlying architecture. And also in your talk, you mentioned uh, the McLean proposal of the trigon brain, which is, might be considered a bit naive. But it was like a, one of these attempts to try to say, like, okay, but these are the different parts of, let's say, an overall neural architecture that we have to consider mm -hmm. when, when, we, when we think about this evolutionary perspective. 
So what's your what's your view on on then these the, the, these key ingredients of that architecture that actually leads to a successful brain? Well, uh, if every every mammal or every animal has a successful brain in some sense. It has to be successful or they wouldn't be here. They but share features. That's the point, <laughs> right? But uh, uh, you're right in the in in pointing out that it's just not neocortex, but the whole brain is being modified in each line depending on what their requirements are. Uh, and, but they interact and uh, give a couple examples. One example, of course, is uh, optic tectum or superior colliculus, as you're talking about mammals. Uh, you don't get uh, a cortical input to the optic tectum in in non-mammals, but you get a cortical input to the tectum. But the regions that project to the cortex or the tectum, superior colliculus in mammals, is variable across mammals. So if you the inputs from frontal motor areas, for example, frontal hyphils and so on, uh, are that's unique to primates and maybe a few independently involved in a few other animals, such as some carnivores and so on, that are highly visual. So you're modifying a structure that has been important for vision through uh, all vertebrates, basically. But you're modifying it by adding complexity to it and adding other ways of influencing its functions. But do you see this adding of complexity mainly occurring at this level of the of this isocortex? Or is it then also matched by the added addition of complexity at these supporting midbrain and, and lower structures? So the, so the midbrain for, will be modified and architectonically it's modified. You can see it's changed greatly in different lines in terms of architectonic complexity. So its functions will be changed as well. Mm -hmm. the, the important feedback into the thalamus uh, is very old, uh, that there's a projection from the optic tectum into the, uh, the thalamus. But how that's distributed to cortex has changed as cortex has changed. Its downstream projections uh, uh, become uh, more important because they're influenced by other inputs and so they're not really doing the same thing as they did before. Mm -hmm. And that it, you could think of almost any structure. The, the amygdala would be responsive to direct inputs uh, from the the thalamic inputs to the amygdala that wouldn't depend on cortex at all, and and they're highly important mm. in a lot of mammals, but certainly non-mammals. But do you see, uh, let's say that the because in some sense the, the 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 sort of the simple view on on the on on this on the phylogeny of of also the human brain would be like okay, you have all these subcortical structures, and they were sort of a constant, and then then this magnificent isocortex grew on top of that, and that. That added all these amazing mm -hmm. functionalities. An alternative view would would be to say, no, actually, these it's a bit like we discussed earlier. Morphology and brain has to match, and in some sense, you could say, okay, oh, isocortex and its its and subcortical structures have to match as well. So it's it's always a co-development and, and and change in these structures mm -hmm. as opposed to these subcortical structures remaining constant and then your isocortex exploding. Mm -hmm. So where do you position yourself in that debate? How how should we look upon that? Well. It, you, you're talking about systems and include cortical parts and other parts of the forebrain and parts of uh, midbrain, hindbrain, spinal cord, mm -hmm. and they all have to be coordinated and interrelated. But a lot of what happens depends on the changes in cortex to sort of drive these other changes, I, in my view. As... Mm -hmm. uh, motor centers in the cortex become important for controlling digit movements and hand and so on. You have to modify the circuitry in the in the cervical spinal cord that will deal with this control of muscles, uh, but deciding when to do something or how to do something and so on uh, uh, would be depend on cortex. So uh, it would be a series of gradual changes, I think, over many, many generations that would modify uh, different parts, but always together, so that it would be re pointless to have some function you couldn't use. Okay. But then if we now, 
reduce a bit the level of, of granularity in that in that discussion. Yeah. So so now we look at let's say this this brain with its different parts. We might have to sort of define what what the, what the key subdivisions mm -hmm. are there. Mm -hmm. um, co evolving with with the morphology. But now these larger chunks, like isocortex and its, its underlying structure, like thalamus or basal ganglia or amygdala, again consist of the subcircuits. And these subcircuits also will have some invariant features and also some variable features. So, what's your view on that? What, what are the invariant features of such an isocortex, and what are the variable features as such a brain is? Is on one changing phylogenetically, but also changing across the different modalities where it has to deal with. Well, tough question, but uh, I've tried to emphasize some of the things that all mammals would have. It it seems unlikely that we would evolve any mammal without a somatosensory system that that had somatosensory cortex involved in it. There's, there are several divisions, but at least one division because we depend on this sort of sensory information uh, so clearly. And once you uh, relegated it to the cortical level, it seems like you're unlikely to to change that uh, and put it and do those functions some other place. Uh, I can imagine the visual structures completely being lost in animals that no longer have functional form vision mm -hmm. uh, as we see that those systems can be greatly reduced. Auditory could be lost. Uh, I can imagine it's, it's not so important in some animals uh, that live underground in tunnels, for example. You know what direction the sound is coming from because your body is blocking it or not and muffling. And, and uh, so sound localization is reduced, sound is still important. You could imagine things being lost. Uh, in terms of higher order functions, and, uh, and it's completely, uh, uh, you could go in any direction, I think. Uh, it could be modified in any way. Uh, it'd be easy for uh, midbrain structures such as the superior colliculus to become completely auditory or completely some had a sensory in, in function and not use vision at all anymore. It is already uh, multimodal, and, mm -hmm. and so you could just change functions. But the functions, the motor functions might be always very similar towards orienting towards a stimulus or something right. like that. Uh, relay of sensory information as another route to cortex mm -hmm. might be completely used in a quite different way. Right. So, John, the, a little... Um, Procedure-wise, yeah. So, so Tony wants to want to discuss have a, discuss you a little bit uh, developments in, in in certain domains of science, like comparative neuro neuroscience and so mm. on. Um, but then he has to go to he has another appointment. So then after that, I, I want to go back to some more specific questions, and then later we just we edit the interview that that okay. sort of these concluding right. questions so go towards the end. Yeah. So yeah. that you're not sort of all right shocked by Tony leaving. And if you want to stop for lunch, then yeah. tell him, because otherwise he'll talk to you until it gets dark. Oh, we <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I will have to go and get my wife for lunch pretty soon, yeah, sometime. Exactly. Okay. Sure. Um, so, well, a couple of things. If, um, the first thing, I wanted to ask about multisensory uh, areas in mm. cortex. So it's clear that uh, these uh, early mammals have these uh, new areas or sort of radically... Um, more sophisticated areas for analyses of the auditory and visual and somatosensory inputs. Now, um, at what stage and whereabouts in their brains do they uh, fuse these inputs? Mm -hmm. And how does the multisensory system evolve uh, as, animal, as, as mammals diversify? Uh, opinions on this have changed a lot in recent times. I, when we were working early on in mapping visual areas, uh, 40 years ago, uh, it was popular, and we believed it, to talk about visual areas or auditory areas or somatosensory areas, and we said, you know, most of the processing is done within a modality, and only at the very end, when things are very sophisticated, do you start to integrate modalities. And this partly was due to the methods of recording from anesthetized animals uh, where you really have dampened the responsiveness of neurons tremendously and and so you're getting this dominant input and say yes that's visual 
Uh, and now when the anatomical methods and, and recording methods are, are, have been improved, you'll start to see people saying, uh, it's multi-sensory everywhere. <laughs> and uh, Barry Stein had a, a book, uh, is the editor of a book a few years ago on uh, multi-sensory uh, systems and uh, it, you could say then it's amazing how fast multi-century processing evolved because it wasn't there very long ago and now it, it's it's everywhere but it depends on what you're looking at clearly people are talking about in in primates that uh, uh, primary, even primary visual cortex gets auditory input, maybe somatosensory input, uh, maybe not so directly, but some inputs rather, rather directly. Uh, if you look at a small brain animal like a rat or a mouse, you're seeing these kind of connections. Uh, primary visual cortex will connect it everywhere almost. I mean, it's you're getting, and uh, if you look carefully at prime striped cortex projections like uh, Henry Kennedy has been doing and uh, 99 of the percent, percent of the connections can be accounted for with maybe five areas that you're talking about but that one percent go, probably goes to 15 other areas and has some influence uh, so I think it's hard to find a neuron in the cortex that's not influenced by more than one modality but whether it's driven at by more than one modality, that would that th that would reduce the number of places that you could, would find that. Yeah, to give to give an example within a modality, you will find in primary somatosensory cortex representing the hand in a monkey, neurons with small excitatory receptor fields on different parts of the digits, rather small, responding nicely. But if you're get the neuron responding and even an anesthetized animal and now have a second somatosensory input somewhere else on the hand it'll influence that firing then you go to the other hand on the other uh, and you will all in also influence that firing and there's practically very few direct connections between the two hemispheres from for the hand areas there's more connections would be from higher areas and then feedback connections. So it's not clear exactly how this is done, but it is clear that our traditional pictures of what neurons are responding to has been greatly constrained by our methods of looking. And when you look in other ways, you'll see the neurons are influenced by much more outside what's they call the classical receptive field in their own modality, but also from other modalities. Well, this is, I think, very interesting. So it, there's, a, there's a caution here for students that if, if, if you're reading the older literature, uh, you, you may want to make sure that, that, that the opinions on these things haven't changed because mm. there's been some really radical changes in methodology here that have made us revise our views on some of these fundamental questions. I guess another thing would be to say that uh, this question of the multisensory cortex is really still open that there's a lot more we need to know about this. And there are recognized areas in, in primates and uh, that are where neurons respond very readily, uh, even in anesthetized animals, to auditory and vision or visional and tactile and so on. And, and these would be called, in earlier times or present times, multisensory. Some of these areas uh, have been called multisensory for a long time because of these responses. But 50 years ago, all the recordings were from a few primary sensory areas because the anesthetics users at that time just blocked everything else. So you had no chance of really talking about multisensory. So, so going to the the field and how it's developed. So you've you've been in this field for for a long for time, and 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 you, I think, you were lucky to come into it at a time when people had this strong interest in uh, comparative approaches and looking at different brains and different mm. species. And uh, now we have these uh, fantastic new range of techniques uh, to do this comparative study, but how do you feel the, the field of comparison 
comparative neuroscience is, is looking in, in correspondence to the rest of, of the field. I mean, is this work happening and where would you like the, the focus to be? Well, first, it's true I've been in the field for a long time. <laughs> uh, and this year I got a letter from Science Magazine uh, where we like to publish every once in a while. It's getting harder. Uh, and they said, you get a free subscription from now on. You don't have to pay for it anymore because you have subscribed for 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> so there are some advantages. I would say not that many, but there are some. Uh, and your question now is, uh, how do I see the changes that have happened in comparative studies of brains? Uh, how is this has this field been influenced by uh, technological advances well, it's, as it, much as other parts of neuroscience? It's, it's how you see the future for comparative mm -hmm. neuroscience, really, more generally. Mm -hmm. So um, there's obviously still many questions to, to, to be asked here, and how should we go about it? How should we balance our resources as a community between this comparative approach that you've been uh, exploring and other approaches mm -hmm. that are maybe focused yeah. more towards okay. single model animals? Mm -hmm. Well. I think the model animal approach has been a good one, and I wouldn't disparage it. Because if you work on a particular animal, you gain a lot of information that others have uh, have developed for you. If you work to another model or another animal, you have to do a lot of things over just to get to the point where you can answer the next question. So that becomes a problem. And sadly, in some ways, uh, I started off working at, on cats as a model system and uh, they've been largely abandoned as a model system and there's a tremendous amount of information known about brain organization in cats from from years and years and years of study that is in some sense now not used to its full capacity because people have moved on to other models. Uh, that said, I think that we should always work on some primate models and some rodent models and maybe a few others, uh, simple models. But I was, uh, simple models are limited in many ways. There is a debate at the vision science meeting, a friendly one just for the fun of it, and uh, uh, Tony Moshman was going to defend using simple models. He works on monkeys, so he was picked to defend using simple models. And he said, why stop at the mouse? C. elegans would be perfect because they're so cheap, the cost per individual is not even worth mentioning. They're so cheap, and they can do so many things. You can train them to move, turn to the left in a maze, and all kinds of things. And he went on for about 15 minutes about their virtues. But he said there are two problems for vision research. They have no eyes and they have no brain. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have to have a model that has the ca capability or the potential of answering the kind of questions you're interested in. And that means that we need a range of models to, because you can answer very general questions or very specific ones depending on what model mm -hmm. you're using. But we also have a chance to study now uh, a whole range of species and do it very productively because the methods are so powerful. You can learn so much and rather, so you can take a new species, somebody, something that's never been looked at before, and you could know a lot about the brain of that species in a, from one laboratory in three or four years. I think you could, you could come up close to having a basic understanding of the brain organization in a relatively short time because the methods are so powerful. And they were so poor when I was starting out. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they were so, you were so limited in what you could do. And they were worse before then. Mm -hmm. So, so, and that people came up with uh, such good ideas uh, early on on such limited information is totally amazing. And it, given your vast ex experience and knowledge of different mammalian brains, are there particular animals that y you think we should be exploring more? Well, from the point of view of, of evolution, uh, brain evolution, which is of particular interest to me, it would be a, it's important to learn more about the relatives of primates. Also, what, how much variability is in the primate order. We know a lot about a few monkeys. We don't know much about the diversity in monkeys. We know very little about apes. 
uh, we, we're learning quite a bit about humans now from non-invasive methods, but so there are big gaps that, that haven't been studied very well. Uh, primate studies aren't very frequent. Uh, a, a review of publications over the last 15 or so years by uh, uh, Paul Manger uh, showed that almost all the studies are on mice or rats or humans. That's a, takes off most all the neuroscience studies. Then out of uh, primate studies that aren't human, then you have macaque monkeys studied. And then the next uh, would be prosimian galagos. And they're only studied in two laboratories that I know of. You know, So the, a single person or a few people could make a big difference by filling in gaps in particular areas. It, th it doesn't take many, but we have a lot of gaps. I think to study animals like the monotremes would be very important because they're so unusual. We don't know anything about the brains, practically nothing about any of the uh, larger uh, marsupial. We know a lot about opossums because they're available in this country. In South America, they're small. You can get them in the laboratory, but we don't know anything about the red kangaroo, giant kangaroo brain, how it's similar, how it's different. We don't even know very much about carnivores at different sizes, so you could pick almost in any uh, order uh, animals that are just a mystery and someone studying them would be bound to find something interesting and, and informative just by falling in and, and trying to do this. So one of the things that could be done in a lot of different countries and there's been a tendency to do this in Brazil, take the native animals that are there and try to understand their brain organization. Yeah. So they're looking at say the very large rodents and so on, how their brains are, are organized. So then, um, to, to follow up on that, so you also showed in your talk that an earlier map of the cortex, mm -hmm. and most of it was actually white, right? So so by now, um, in your, uh, how much of this map of the cortex have you f do you feel have you really filled in? Can we say, look, these are areas that where we really have understanding how they're organized, how structure maps to function, and how big are the gaps. There are major gaps, but depending on who you ask, you'll the people will feel well. We've got the gaps pretty well filled in, or not. So you can look at uh, Broadman's maps. There were no gaps. <laughs> right. What? The, but there were a lot of errors. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and different kinds of errors. Uh, we can m make complete maps at any time, and, if we're, and it depends on our tolerance of ambiguity, or, under, or, or we can say, well, we're basing this on a very limited amount of evidence, and so on. And the kind of map that, for example, that Fellman and Van Essen did had a lot of uncertainty, which they recognized and talked about. Uh, and I think it's important to talk about uncertainty so people don't get the impression that we really understand all the little divisions and, and subdivisions of the brain and, and where they are and how they're organized and how they interact. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but if you would have to give this a number, would you say, look, 20% is reasonably well explored, so uncertainty is low for these areas, let's say primary visual, primary motor, there we know what we're talking about. Association areas is, let's say, synonymous with saying we have no clue. So yeah. out of the proposed about 100 areas in a macaque brain, I would say we probably have a good understanding of about 20, so that'd be about 20% in right. that brain. And But it depends on what you mean. I would say that one of the, you can find good evidence for a functionally distinct region but to define it precisely in terms of boundaries it becomes a real problem. So if we talked about VIP today in the talk today, uh, people are very uncertain about what you're talking about. You know roughly where you are and you say, I'm in, if I'm in this region, it must be VIP. But uh, it's try hard to pin down exactly where, where the area is, what the boundaries are. Is it variable across are the boundaries variable across different individuals and so on. So I'd say it's that's a subdivision of the brain that's reasonably well understood, but it's not understood to the extent that you can say, 
I know I'm in it or I don't, I'm not sure whether I'm in it, those kind of questions. You don't know what all the connections are because we don't know how to define the area precisely. Right. But then, in some sense, also in your recent work, I think this also illustrated maybe this issue a little bit because if you look at motor areas, Mm -hmm. then in some sense the the standard knowledge would be that, that you have a fairly abstract representation of, let's say, the direction of movements, acceleration of movements. We're close to the kinematics of, of, of the whole uh, of the body that we're then controlling. But in your recent work, you show that if you stimulate in these motorized areas, you actually can get whole coordinated movement patterns. Mm-hmm. So how do you then link or compare that to, to our, let's say, standard understanding of these areas we thought we knew? You say, okay, there's something like a population response that gives you some kinematic control. But now it seems that in your recent results, you're saying, look, actually, we're talking about highly coordinated control of stereotype behavioral mm-hmm. patterns. Mm-hmm. So where are we going with that? Well, motor cortex, even primary motor cortex, is especially interesting because the early maps didn't quite give the in- details of the way that they're organized. So you'll have a hand area, you'll have a foot area, a face area, tongue area, if you even. But within the hand area, you'll get multiple representation of, of the digits movements, the same digits. You'll get a digit movement that the very next site where you stimulate it next to it, you'll get a wrist movement, or you might even get uh, movement at the elbow, uh, or you might get, uh, and the same digit movement would be paired with other digit movements or, or just that single digit movement. But that would be repeated over a large region of cortex. You, you would find the same movement again. And this seems to be different than some of the sensory representations. Why are you repeating these things? And you could say, well, it's important because these different, this any particular movement might be conjoined with any other kind of movement, and you want to have them close and interconnected. I think now that the long-term stimulation which showing more purposeful behaviors can be, or movements, can be elicited from primary motor cortex or premotor cortex, is starting to give another perspective on this issue. Uh, Part of a cortical area of M1, of the hand area, will be involved in some kind of behavior with the hand. Another part will be involved in another kind of behavior with the hand, and joined with arm movements and so on, depending on what it is. And so this adds a complexity as if parts of the area are are uh, working somewhat independently from other parts of the hand area. You're not involving the whole hand area in a, one task. You're ever involving part of it, and other parts will be involved in other tasks. That's what seems to be suggested by these kind of stimulation experiments. So it's um, more complicated than it seemed originally. Right. So are you saying with that that in these motor areas you would have like a, a library of, of discrete behaviors that are then sort of biased with respect to the to the, the, the limbs that are being involved in these behaviors? Should I look at it like that? I think you can look at it that there's an organization, a gross organization of foot to tongue from medial to lateral. Uh, and then within that, there's a more complex organization. and But that organization is similar across individuals of the same species and even across members of the same family, different species. Mm-hmm. So you have this preserved. And the reason it's preserved must be that it in some way is specified during development to come out in a particular way every time. On top of that, you must have tremendous amount of, modif- of being able to modify these circuits by experience and training so that you not only uh, want to be able to do some tasks that every animal has to do or every person has to do, pick up something, but you want to be able to develop specific skills that for a human maybe making pottery or something like you practice and you mm-hmm. get good at it but it could be anything that you practice and get good at uh, for many species I practice and modifying the system may not be that important if your average lifespan is eight months 
you don't want to spend a right. lot of time modifying it. But for a long-lived species, mm-hmm. this modification can be mm-hmm. very important. So our motor cortex part of the motor system is uh, greatly expanded. It's got uh, all these premotor areas and singlet motor areas in it. So there's a tremendous amount of cortex involved in exactly what this means isn't so clear, but hmm. there's a big investment in, in motor control at right. the cortical sure. level that interacts hmm. with posterior parietal cortex, frontal cortex, hmm. sensory inputs of various sorts. Right. But do you see these behavioral primitives now? So we're not talking motor primitives, we're hmm. talking behavioral primitives matching the ones that are represented mm-hmm. and controlled mm-hmm. at subcortical levels, like in areas like the central gray, for instance. Do you see some yeah. matching there between these primitives? Yeah. That are then so that means the motor cortex provides you an interface to these subcortical areas on, on which you can then start to play using let's say your planning and learning mechanisms you have at cortex. Or should mm-hmm. I look at this differently? No, I think you're looking at it in a good way because uh, it's has been unpopular to talk about uh, primitives are built-in sort of things in, in a human brain, for example, and and, and say it's uh, all learning, uh, or almost all learning. Uh, it, but then if you start looking at mammals in general, you see that there's so many things that uh, would be uh, too costly to learn, uh, costly in that you wouldn't live long enough to learn them if you didn't know how to run away or escape or recognize a dangerous situation or to find your mother, or whatever. There could be so many different things. There might be very rapid learning in the kinds of imprinting for many things that would would uh, allow a pre-adapted system to rapidly uh, congeal into uh, eliciting a kind of behavior that's hard to rule that out. Uh, but then you have a whole system of levels of, uh, of, of uh, say, a uh, sensory motor uh, system uh, that would have to be working in concert, uh, pre-adapted for certain primitives, uh, modifiable, uh, hopefully in some ways, uh, and on top of that then completely learned and and modifiable sorts of motor behaviors that would be unique to the individual if they bothered to learn them. Right. So John, to to get to the to the finish line with with our uh, our discussion, I have two questions. So so as you already indicated yourself, you you got awarded this this free uh, subscription now to science because of <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes. we have been paying enough money I to this. I haven't gotten the first issue free yet though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll see. So but based based on this broad experience you have in the, in the study of brains and this comparative study of brains, what would you now? See as the the law of John Cass in in our, in our attempts to understand the brain. A law? Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I'm not sure what a law law in, in in. We used to talk about laws in science quite a bit, but I, I, not so much anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so uh, this is your chance. Yeah, <laughs> so I could make make a law. Yeah. Uh, John Allman and I, when we used to started defining visual areas, thought. Maybe they'll name a visual area after us sometime, but it never happened. Or an asteroid, so, maybe. So now is a chance for a law. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I don't think I can. I can think of a, uh, something that would fit the, the 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 law. What what what? I would like to uh, take from other people that have made studies in in development is is, is that. Uh, one level of a system will specify what the next level, how a lot of its organization, so that you have this chain naturally that starts with uh, sensory inputs and modifies the system to adjust to whatever the sensory inputs happen to be. This this principle probably works anywhere in the nervous system. You make a change at at any level in a, in a complex network and in development and the rest of the system will develop to accommodate that and this makes brain evolution and change fantastically more easy because you can imagine if it's at some sense based on genetic change that you you wouldn't want something that you had to change the genes at 10 different places or the gene expression at 10 different places to get what you wanted you'd like to be able to make a change one place by some fortuitous 
accident of genetics and that dies out because it didn't work well or it's propagated, but for it to work at all, it, it has to propagate itself through the whole system. Mm -hmm. So the, the John Carr's law would be that when we look at the brain, its power is actually its ability to adjust to many different kinds of sensory inputs, also across different yeah. morphologies, right? So it's very, it's very much a, a very gen general design of many possible brains as opposed to a single one. Yes. And, and that the driving the driving force is really how am I changing the inputs to this this hyper let's say plastic control system. Yeah. But I don't know how we can summarize it in three words. So then the second yeah. the, the second question would be um, if we're gonna get you back here five years from now and we do a similar interview, I wanna ask you, okay, did your prediction work out or not? So what's What's the one prediction you would like to make today that you're most enthusiastic about, that you have the strongest confidence in? I think that we're going to have, at the cellular level, a much better understanding of a whole range of brains. And one of the surprises that's coming out of looking at uh, just counting neurons as a whole change from views that were made 20 years ago. And the, and the view then was is that uh, all cortical areas are basically the same in the sense that their hardware is the same. Their neurons are the same. If you run a pin down through cortex, you'll count the same number of neurons no matter where you are and so on. The variability is turning out to be really tremendous and it's possible to look at different aspects of that variability now. And one thing that's true that's going back to the early studies, they said that the one exception is primary visual cortex in primates that the number of neurons is twice as many per unit volume of tissue than other places. It turns out that this that statement is absolutely true for humans and for uh, monkeys. Uh, it's less true for prosimian primates. It's less true for new world monkeys and old world monkeys and so on. So it's variable for primary visual cortex, but it's also variable in many other areas and we don't know completely for humans yet but macaque monkeys have variable numbers of neurons or neuron densities for different cortical areas so they're specialized by changing the density of neurons which implies changing the sizes of neurons so bigger or smaller because that affects the density that you can pack them and that wasn't appreciated uh, and it's just starting to become known as, as a big variable. But this variable is very, uh, is a major variable in macaque monkeys. It's going to turn out, I predict, to be a major variable in the human brain. And it's not going to be a major variable for most mammals. The neuron densities, the neuron shapes, the neuron functions are going to be more standard for most mammals, including prosimian primates. Okay, great. Well, John Gus, thank you very much for this conversation. Okay. That was great, John. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biometics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Program. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biometrics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.